You are listening to ARD Healthcare. I am your host Anirban. You can expect deep, insightful conversations with stakeholders from clinical, technical, industrial and regulatory affairs about the bottlenecks of bringing AI to scale up access to healthcare at the planetary scale. I thank the Mikhai Society and Hessian AI for supporting the podcast. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together, let's make healthcare AI ready. So, welcome to the ninth season of AI Ready Healthcare. It's a evening with some rain here in Darmstadt. Uh, uh, so it's a bit gloomy as as a typical October weather in Germany, uh, but it's a really a pleasure to have with us Camila Gonzalez from the sunny California. She's uh, currently located in Stanford University, USA, and this is the first time we are recording an episode with an alumna from our group. So this could have been very well a uh, chat in between us in front of the coffee machine, <laughs> but it's happening right here. So that's a different thing. We never did it before. So this would be a new experience, I guess. Camila finished her PhD on medical continual learning in March 2023 in our group while accumulating multiple awards along the process. Um, she is also the outgoing president of the Mikhail Student Board, presiding it for the last two years or so. So we will hear from her a lot about her thoughts on the continual learning research from the technical perspective, but also the activities she is doing to make continual learning more accessible to not only computer scientists, but also clinicians and regulators alike. But first and foremost, welcome to the podcast, Camila. Thank you so much, Anirvan and Harry. Thank you so much for the invitation. I wanted to say so here it is a sunny morning in California as it typically is. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so thank you so much for being here. I miss talking to you, as you were saying, also over a coffee and in general. Hi, Camila, and welcome to the podcast also from my side. Um, as you said, it's been quite a while uh, that we have talked to each other. So yeah, it's a great pleasure for me as well to have you here today. So I assume that our uh, audience might be curious about how it all started and how it's going. So basically, what is your becoming as a researcher? And yeah, how did you decide to join Anivan's group and work with him? Well, I would say it's a little bit funny because I have always been interested in machine learning and neuroscience. And then I basically decided when I finished high school to focus on machine learning. And then I did a lot of lectures related to that in my undergraduate studies. And then I remember I did a, I did a lecture with Arirvan when I was in my master's on deep generative models. And there was a class project and I had a lot of fun and I loved it. So I decided to write my master thesis with him. And in writing my master thesis, I already went a little bit into the topic of continual learning. And of course, it was a medical imaging group, which I loved. I loved working with medical data. I had worked with many other types of data in the past. So NLP problems, imaging data, but never medical data. And I loved that. So yeah, I started working on this problem of how to prevent catastrophic forgetting in deep neural networks, which is this process that you have when you train the model with data from a new distribution and the model very quickly forgets a lot of information it has learned in the past. So I started looking into this problem and what I encountered was at the time, so we are talking about 2018, I believe, 2000, no, sorry, 2020, 2019, 2020. So at the time there were like these approaches such as elastic weight consolidation that were sort of the type of methods that a lot of people were trying out. And what I found was that many of these methods just did not transfer at all to medical imaging. The performance was very, very unreliable. The computational constraints were a big problem. 
So yeah, I basically worked on that during my master's thesis and then the opportunity came up to do my PhD. And I remember at the time, and it's a bit similar to the situation once I finished my PhD, that I was actually also looking at industry positions. And then I realized, okay, there were a lot of more things that I still wanted to work on in terms of research papers I wanted to write. So then uh, I decided to do the PhD and it was an excellent decision. I mean, Anirvan was an amazing mentor, especially I had the fortune to be one of the only PhD students he was supervising at the time <laughs> for, for a very short time. I was actually the only PhD student. I remember, of course, Henry, you were there because you were always there. But um, so Henry was working as a research assistant, but was still um, doing his master's. So it was the only official PhD student for a short while after uh, the previous ones had finished. And uh, this means that I got a lot of help, um, a lot of feedback, a lot of very close supervision, which was amazing. So, yeah, I guess that's how I started working on um, this problem of continual learning. And then during my PhD, I realized we needed to go a step back because a lot of the methods for continual learning sort of relied on the fact that we had knowledge on when there was a shift in the data distribution. And we also had the knowledge on which shift had occurred. And this was just not the case in practice. So I went sort of a step back and started looking a little bit more at sort of uncertainty estimation and out of distribution detection in the context of medical imaging, so mainly CT and MRT data, to try to know when these shifts were happening. I can move on or you can submit. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was really uh, a great summary of the research that you were involved in and you are doing. Thanks also for the in the public domain saying I was a nice boss. I, I, I am sure we had our own share of skeletons in the cupboard, but let's not bring it up in the public domain. <laughs> I, I would say the very, the very funny thing is that um, sometimes people like pretend that they are like good people and they're actually assholes. I don't know if I can say this. And the funny thing is that Adirbad always says that he is an asshole, but he's actually a very, very good mentor, <laughs> at least was for me. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's a funny way of putting it. But before we go into your research, I was just curious to ask you this question before, but I guess we never got a chance. So this is your second time you changed continents. So the mm -hmm. first time, so I, you didn't really tell it, but you are you grew up in Argentina, so South America, and then you came to Germany for your bachelor's, master's, PhD, and then you moved again to USA. So is the second one easier, more natural, or the first one was easier for you? I think for me, both moves were easy in the sense that I basically have nothing to lose. I think so when I moved to Germany, I moved to Germany after finishing high school. So I had gone to a German high school and I had the opportunity to do some exams that were basically a sort of abitua, which means I could directly enter university. And of course, university in Germany is public. Living in Germany is very inexpensive, at least compared to a lot of other countries. So I saw this uh, move to Germany as something that where I had very low risk, basically, I thought, okay, so I will move there and this could open a lot of doors for me or I could hate it. And if I hate it, I will go back. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, I did really like it. I loved uh, being in Germany. I loved especially the safety of being in a country where I could sometimes be out alone at 3 or 4 a.m. in the morning as a woman listening to music. And that was perfectly all right. So I loved this. I thought it was very, very freeing. I also love the um, environment at the university. So I had started studying at the University of Buenos Aires when I was in Argentina, which is a fantastic university, but um, I didn't feel like there was as much, I would say, the environment wasn't as homey as I would say, as the Technical University of Darmstadt. So I liked it there a lot. So it was quite easy in that sense. And then when I moved to the U.S., it was similar. So basically, um, yeah, after finishing my PhD, this opportunity came up. So it was between also going to industry and doing a postdoc, but really, I would say several months before even starting writing my thesis, I already knew I wanted to do a postdoc. I knew I wanted to do a postdoc on neuroimaging, 
And then, um, yeah, I started looking for positions and um, I am very happy with the lab that I selected. So I work at the Computational Neuroscience Lab here at Stanford. So for me, sort of moving here was as well, while I was in Germany, I was very, very fortunate that I was able to obtain my German citizenship. So I also saw this as, okay, if I hate it, I can also go back, you know? And so in that sense for me, um, there weren't that many risks involved. Uh, and now I'm loving it. I am loving living here, actually. But um, I would say, practically, it was a lot, lot harder to move now to the U.S. And just, yeah, I mean, just in terms of logistics, when I moved from Argentina to Germany, I was living with my parents at the time. So then basically I just left all of my stuff there. Just I left my room completely full with stuff. And yeah, I just went to the airport and moved and my parents drove me to the airport and I had like a few suitcases and that was it. And I got to Germany and I got into my room that I had found and that was it. When I moved from Germany to the US, um, basically I had two cats, which I had adopted on my last few years in Germany. And uh, I had to basically empty out my flat in Germany because I wasn't sure when I was going to be able to travel. So um, the new tenants actually had the contract one month later. And then basically I had to arrange with them that they could move in earlier. I had to just clean everything out. I had to then take all of my possessions. Of course, I did live with uh, a few friends who, if they are listening to this, thank you again. I did leave a few boxes in Germany. But other than that, I had to bring all of my possessions. I had to throw away a lot of stuff, gift a lot of stuff, and just pack everything into a few suitcases because I didn't ship anything. And also my cats and come here to the U.S. and, uh, yeah, first come to an Airbnb. So logistically, it was a lot, lot more stressful, especially because I would say the last few months before moving, I had a lot of things going on, so I didn't take as much care of the process of moving as I should have. And all of my friends who were there can attest to that. I basically left everything for the last minute and it was just completely insane the last few days. So yeah, and then and then I came here and of course life here is completely different. So much different than I was expecting. I thought, okay, so this is, I would say this like in a sort of very broad sense, this is like a first world country like Germany. I thought that life here in the U.S., at least in California, would be very, very similar to life in Germany. And it is so different. So, um, yeah, I would say the move was a lot more difficult the second time. Uh, Also, getting used to life in the U.S. was a lot more difficult. But, yeah, I would say now after a few months, I feel quite settled here. Wonderful. So... That, that's that's really good to know that you are settling down. Well, I can always imagine that when you are younger, it's much easier to move from the practical perspective, but also you have a different mindset of what really belongings mean. <laughs> and you probably want to leave the parents' place as soon as you can. <laughs> so that way, it, it, it it's a totally different ball game than when you are trying to move after staying uh, in, in a place like Darmstadt. I don't know why you stayed for such long in Darmstadt. <laughs> you well, you convinced me, so now... <laughs> But I guess it it also, in a funny uh, way, brings to the point of your research that you have to continually learn and try to end up (laughs) as you are changing places. So basically, can you give us an understanding for all our listeners, like what is really medical continual learning and why should we care about it? Yes, so I would like to start defining what continual learning is, and I would sort of give you an intuition of the more traditional type of continual learning, where basically what we have is a sequence of tasks, which can be related in different ways. Um, And we receive training data from these tasks, one after the other. So this is different to the regular way of training a deep learning model, where we have all of our training data at once. We train the model, then we evaluate it. In this case, we basically have to start training with data from task one, then finish that process, then start training with data from task two, and so on. And the goal at the end is that our model should perform well on all of the same tasks. And I would say there are three main scenarios of continual learning. I am cited a paper, uh, which I have cited many times in the past, which is 
three scenarios in continual learning. There are a few versions of this, where one of them is class incremental learning. So in this sense, you basically have more classes as time goes on. So for instance, in medical imaging, you could think of different types of tumors. So you first only have, even like say in a segmentation problem, you only have segmentations for a few tumor types. And then as time goes on, the types of classes grows. We also have incremental domain. And this is, I would say, the most relevant scenario for continue, for medical continual learning, because this happens when we have changes in the imaging distribution, which could, for instance, result in using a different scanner or different acquisition parameters. So in traditional computer vision continual learning, what we see is, for instance, we train a model and say we first train with images from ImageNet, and then we start training it with perturbed images for which certain kinds of noise has been added. So this is domain incremental domain learning. And then we also have incremental task learning, where basically we can have many different types of shifts into this task, but we believe there are certain types of information that are usable for us. So we want to maintain that knowledge across the task. So this could be tasks that are semantically related, but not exactly the same. So this could be sort of the more traditional notion of just having a sequence of tasks. Now, of course, uh, one big, big topic in continual learning is when we are working with foundation models. We have these large models that we typically um, fine-tune or build and adapt for, and we want to be able to do that to fine-tune this to our particular problem, but we still want to maintain all of the richness in the data of the original model. If you see, for instance, in the accepted new of submissions or for iClear, you will see a few papers that approach this, this problem. One other big difference, if we are talking about what is our continual learning scenario, has to do with data availability. So some of the continual learning methods typically assume that you have access to sample of earlier tasks. So say you're at the time where you're training with task five, but you still have access to at least a subset of examples from task one to four. Other methods assume that you do not have this. Now, this is a very, very important difference for medical continual learning because a big problem always with working with medical data is the fact that we want to protect patient privacy, of course. So there are situations where we may have access to certain kinds of data at one point in time from which we can train the model, but we won't always have access to this type of data. So this is one very important concern when you're talking about medical continual learning. What are our constraints on data availability? Now, I would also say one big, big constraint or one thing to consider when working with medical data is always GPU usage, as at least if you're talking of high-dimensional data, which could be a CT, MRT, histopathology. These are typically quite large images. So we always have to think about our GPU memory and our memory constraints. If you look at sort of the traditional methods that approach continual learning, which most of them have some sort of distillation component, then we sometimes run into issues if we try to trivially adapt this method to a medical imaging problem. So these are some of the things to consider. I would say the biggest difference when talking about medical continual learning and also medical imaging in general is that you typically have smaller data sets with less heterogeneity. Um, so you have to think about how to adapt problems to this. Um, sorry, how to adapt methods to this setting. One thing that I'm also, um, I have also realized, and it's a thing that I very briefly mentioned in the beginning, is that we need to consider whether we have knowledge on when we have a shift in the distribution. So we can think of continual learning as such a sequence of tasks, and you will see in many, many papers and many benchmarks, this is the setting that they use. So you have, say, five different tasks, and this shifts suddenly. Um, but in the real world, of course, we typically have more of a slowly shifting distribution. So this is also an important difference to consider. So yeah, those are some of the aspects. So why should we care about medical continual learning? I think we need to care about medical continual learning because 
the real world is continual. We typically, for writing papers, we do this retrospectively. So this means that we have, first of all, a lot of knowledge on all of the issues that we will encounter. And we are also doing this in a static setting. Even when we sometimes simulate some continual components, it's still actually retrospective and static in the sense that we actually have this data from the beginning. So the real world is continuous. And especially with medical imaging, we have a lot, lot of different factors. And of course, there are many, many great works looking at this from many researchers. There are many, many factors of distribution shift that cause our models to deteriorate if we do not update them. We have changes in the patient demographics. We have changes in the acquisition technologies. We have changes in also the way certain diseases or conditions manifest. So we have all of these changes in our data. So we do need to update the models. We know this. If we are, if we consider having a product that is AI powered that does a certain kind of segmentation or classification, I do believe we all know we will need to adapt this model to changes in the data distribution. And then, of course, the trivial way to solve this is to just take all of the data and retrain. But there are many situations where you, we cannot do this, and that's where continual learning comes in. Now, I would say federated learning is somewhat related to continual learning in the sense that federated learning at least addresses some of these problems with data privacy because it allows you to maintain the data in a lot of different institutions. But still, I mean, federated learning does not address the fact that you may not have access to some of the images as time goes on. And it also assumes that all of these participating institutions have the infrastructure and the people willing to do all of the work required to train a model in a federated manner that works properly. Wonderful. Thank you very much for the summary of the field and for your insights and especially for the broad overview and at the same time precise information. So those of our listeners who have been attending Mikai this year in Vancouver might have noticed that a new tutorial format emerged, uh, which is called DICAO, which you have been organizing this year for the very first time. So can you maybe give us a summary uh, of the contents that are discussed, basically the gist of the tutorial? Yes, uh, thank you so much for raising this topic. So I am very, very happy that we could do this. First of all, that the tutorial was accepted <laughs> and also that we could actually carry it out. Um, I'm really invested in this project and I really hope that we can continue doing something similar, at least in following editions of Mikai. So DICO stands for Dynamic AI in the Open Clinical World. Clinical Open World, sorry. <laughs> exactly. So basically what we wanted to do in this tutorial was to give participants some general knowledge on the types of distribution shifts that they can expect, the types of continual learning techniques that they could use for training their models in a continual manner, and also sort of the questions that this raises from a regulatory perspective. Now, what the concept was for this tutorial was that we would not just say, give certain lectures or teach certain materials that were already there, but we wanted this to be really, really interactive where the participants actually could discuss their specific use cases. And we could look at, okay, what distribution shifts have they encountered in the past? What distribution shifts could they still encounter? For their particular constraints of their problem, what are the most suitable continual learning methods? So this is what we wanted to do. And I would say we were fortunate that actually we had some really, really great participants who um, yeah, stayed the whole tutorial and discussed with us what they were working on and what are problems that they encountered when, say, deploying a deep learning product that then didn't work in clinics because of certain issues. So we could discuss all of these topics and we could think about good strategies for continual learning. And yeah, so the format of the tutorial, we had two keynotes. 
But um, in the first one, we discuss more of the distribution shift aspect of it. And in the second one, we discuss continual learning techniques. But uh, it was very, very interactive. So basically, um, all of the participants said what they were working on. We discussed what would be appropriate methods to approach this, etc. And yeah, I really, really like that format. I would say in general, in Mikai, there are many workshops where people can um, submit and present their methodological contributions, such as, of course, uh, deep generative models. Also, yeah, DART, of course, in DART, continual learning is one of the topics that they list as the participants can give contributions on. I myself had a continual learning paper in DART last year, and this year, the one who won best paper was a continual learning paper. Um, yeah, so I'm sure, of course, many of the topics of continual learning are also about uncertainty and detection of distribution shifts. So I'm sure it's also one of these workshops. So what we wanted to do with DIPOC is to put a space for more of this closer interaction between the participants and other participants, not just ourselves, and sort of build an open forum to discuss practical solutions to actual problems. So maybe a sort of a follow-up question, because typically the Mikai format is you, you give one or two tutorials across, let's say, two or three years, and then you see how the, let's say, community is building around it. And if that particular topic of interest gets enough paper in the Mikai uh, or uh, like the main conference, then you start sort of a workshop. But the problem of the Typical workshop is that the incentives are such that you are focusing on almost like doing a main conference style presentation of like people going on the top podium and presenting or like a poster presentation, but not really the sort of the hands-on uh, uh, aspect that you are talking about. So if you want to move forward, what would be your plan? How would you go about it? Uh, yeah, thanks. So, so first of all, I do generally think that workshops are an excellent part of Mikai. I, so I, you, you know, this, of course, I helped a little bit organize deep generative models this year. I also attended other workshops and I could say even some of the contributions, I was shocked that they were not accepted for the main conference because they were great. And the presentations that people held were also amazing uh, in many cases. So actually, um, the original idea was to sort of divide people into groups and that each of these groups would imagine having a company or startup where they wanted to market an AI-powered software as a medical device, say, and they have to look at all of the potential issues that they would encounter and sort of think about ways to address this. And they would be working within these groups and then tell us their progress. And then ideally within these groups, we will have people from different backgrounds. So from more technical backgrounds for more clinical backgrounds, et cetera. And uh, each group would actually be working on a specific problem that the participants were already familiar with. So that was the original concept. Um, of course, at the end, um, this raised a lot of questions in terms of logistics, because first of all, um, so I found it excellent that in Mikai this year, we had Clinicai built a lot more um, closely, I would say, into the main um, into the main program. But still, there are very, very few um, people with clinical backgrounds who attend the satellite events. So all of our participants, at least, were more like from the computer science background. So we could not have this one aspect where it was more interdisciplinary. But this is basically the format that. I had ambition and it would still be, be the format that I would like to do. So this year, we didn't have so many participants that I thought would make sense to have these different groups, which is why we typically had more of an open discussion type of format, which actually several of them say that they really enjoy to have this sort of open discussion. We do still want to have that next year, but maybe if we have a lot more participants, we would do sort of more of these working groups. Now, one element that we are also considering adding next year is also a challenge. Of course, there are a lot of challenges in Mikai, but none which directly addresses continual learning. So this is one thing that we are thinking of how, how we can do this. Um, what we also want to do next year is sort of change a little bit the thematic to put more focus on this 
fine-tuning or foundation models because we think that is one aspect where we are seeing a lot more papers also in the main in the main conference as well as in workshops and also in general i mean even yeah a, a lot of um other conferences are seeing this intersection between continual learning okay how how do you actually continue training these foundation models so that is one aspect that we want to put more focus on next year but we definitely want to keep this very, very interactive to not have this format of short presentations, but to give participants the opportunity to communicate with each other. And as I was saying, I mean, this should not be something where um, any one person, including um, our keynote speakers, sort of gives information to the participants. It should be a place where participants can discuss their particular problems with other members of the community and think about how to address this so that we can actually move from such static evaluation settings, which are very unrealistic, to a situation where we could potentially use a solution as a product in the real world. So that's that's a very nice approach towards a tutorial, I find, because uh, many tutorials that you encounter are often just straightforward lectures or consecutive talks. And um, a bit more interactivity always uh, is a good idea to bring in. One thing I was I was wondering about when you described the scope of the tutorial were uh, the regulatory aspects. Can you maybe give me a quick summary of to what degree it was part of uh, this year's tutorial and how you're going to cover it in next year's tutorial? Yes, definitely. So in this year's tutorial, I basically gave a very, very broad overview of all of the changes that have been going on in terms of regulation in the European Union and North America. So I gave a very, very broad overview. And then we discussed from these sort of use cases that we had been working on since the beginning of the tutorial, we discussed how these regulatory frameworks could impact these solutions. So, um, yeah, I would say this, this, this is sort of maybe the same concept that we would like to have next year. I would really, really have liked to have an expert on this topic with more of a regulatory background to give this talk, which was not possible this year because, again, we would only have been able to get a person who would not be there in person, who would not actually attend Mikai. So then basically we had to decide, okay, do we want to have another talk which is online or do we want to choose and put more focus on the on-site participants? So it's still open for next year. But yeah, basically, that's the way that we address it this year. So, um, of course, it's a, as, as I was saying, right? Um, real clinics are dynamic environments. The real world is continuous. So, we also see this, just like we see this in research, this disconnect where so many papers just have static evaluations. We also see this in the regulatory guidelines, at least until now. This has been slowly changing in the last few years, but until quite recently, the way it worked would be that you would develop a certain product, then you would evaluate it optimally with data from unseen institutions. And then this would be a product would receive, say, a C marking, and then um, you would be able to market it. However, now that we have so much knowledge on all of these shifts that happen over time, and if we really understand that we don't know which shifts can actually happen, we cannot just augment the data in preparation for this because new technologies are always coming out and always quicker and quicker. And we always have more types of variability that emerge. So we cannot always anticipate these changes. So we need um, a regulatory landscape that actually considers this. And this is something that we have been seeing in the last few years. So we have been seeing this in the FDA with the predetermined change control plan. We have been seeing this in the European Union with the Artificial Intelligence Act, um, as well as the medical device regulation, but the medical device regulation does not address systems that continue to learn as the AI Act does. So yeah, we have been seeing these changes, which I think are fantastic because not only do they allow us, not, not only do they give us a framework where it is easier to update models to their new environment, but they also put a focus on continual evaluation, which is a very, very important aspect. The concept that we cannot just 
develop a product and put it in the market and hope that it works well always. But we do need to always be monitoring it closely. And this product needs to be monitored closely by the manufacturer, by the user, and also by the regulatory entities. It's going to be really exciting how things will be developing until uh, yeah, until next year's workshop regarding the regulatory aspects. And hopefully more legal experts will um, as well join the Mikai community because, as you said, there is a certain disconnect. It is also something that we noticed in previous sessions of the podcast that the Mikai community is a community of uh, excellent computer scientists and excellent researchers, uh, excellent clinicians but legal entities are still uh, somewhat lacking. I just wanted to say it's funny because um, just now, I don't know when this podcast episode will come out, but uh, in reality, we are recording this right after Karim's um, tutorial that he gave, well, webinar that he gave for the Mika student board on ethics in AI. And uh, one, of the, one of the comments that he made was that a lot of these questions on ethics should not be addressed by computer scientists, but also by people who are experts on this domain and at least by an interdisciplinary committee. So yeah, I also find it quite unfortunate that um, the great majority of people who attend Mikai, which of course makes sense, but it, it is a situation that most of them are computer scientists. So we don't really get to engage in these interdisciplinary discussions, which are very, very important for these aspects, such as fairness, ethics, and also for how to regulate continuously learning systems. So yeah, I, I do not know. I do not know if we will we'll be able to. It would maybe be interesting to have a keynote in the main conference by somebody from that background. That would be, I think, super interesting. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. And I wish you all the best for it. So um, yeah, also thank you very much for your uh, insights about the webinar uh, organized by Mikai Student Board. Depending on when uh, the session will air, yeah, it might be possible to uh, see similar contents. So I would like to move on to a more technical part of the session today. So one of your success stories during your PhD thesis was uh, the framework that you have been developing, which is called Lifelong NNUnit, which has currently 102 stars on GitHub, which is quite a lot for a repository uh, in a uh, field like this. So can you Give us a quick introduction to it, what it does and uh, what it is for. Yeah, I would, I would love to. So basically what we did with the lifelong NN unit is build on top of the NN unit, which I would assume a big portion of the listeners would be familiar with. So this is this framework for medical image segmentation that has won a lot of awards. It was developed by the Chairman Cancer Research Center, which is, by the way, very, very close to Darmstadt. So um, there was this framework and what we did was basically extend this with a lot of continual learning methods and also continual learning evaluation metrics and processes. So um, one problem that I encountered when I started working with continual learning was that basically I would take uh, some unit um, and then I would start implementing continual learning methods into it and then I would just do my evaluation and then of course the criticism that always came and which is very valid is okay, but this is not like a state of the art unit. So do your results even make sense? And yeah, this is why we decided, okay, so we have this pipeline, which is open source, which has won a lot of challenges. So let's just take that and let's build on top of that. And let's make a framework that people can actually use for continual learning, where they can actually say for their problem, for a model that performs reasonably well, how would um, continual learning impact this? So of course, um, the first possibility that you have when taking this is looking at just like regular sequential training. So you can basically separate very, very easily in the same format that you would have in the NN unit with different tasks. You can just, um, yeah, you just have different tasks and basically you would just give the lifelong NN unit framework the things. Okay, so train with these tasks one after the other with so many epochs for each of the tasks. And then you can see, first of all, with that sort of regular sequential training, uh, what happens with your data. So um, you can basically perform the evaluation with a test set from each of these tasks and see whether you have any sort of performance decrease or not. And then um, you also have different possibilities of, say, freezing part of the network and only training part of it, um, keeping task independent heads, and also, yeah, 
several continual learning methods that we have built into the pipeline. And we have built some methods for regularization, which basically means that we calculate the importance of each parameter and we prevent important parameters from changing too much. We have also built some um, distillation methods where basically um, we try to make like a new pass with the new data, but the previous model state. And we record the outputs and we try to keep the new outputs similar to the previous outputs. Um, so we also have um, some, we also have like rehearsal, which is, yeah, so I would say yeah, the, the best performing method when you have the possibility to store a subset of samples from previous tasks. You can do this very, very easily with the NN unit. I mean, it only takes like one, one command, one line of code, just like the regular NN unit where you can just say, okay, so I want to run like I want to train with these tasks one after the other with rehearsal, with just um, storing, say, 10% of the data or 20% or whatever. And you can basically test this in your data. And yeah, the idea of this was to promote further research in continual learning for medical segmentation, but also to give people the possibility to just see for their problem, maybe what the effects of these distribution shifts would cause. Yeah, that sounds really wonderful. A great summary of lifelong in any unit and sort of the design choices that we had in mind was like, as you mentioned, that we wanted to have the state-of-the-art performance and then measure the forgetting, the forward transfer, backward transfer, all these metrics, and not on a par- on a model that starts with a very lousy performance and then does whatever because nobody cares about that. Um, if I can say one one short comment. So also, of course, like I was not um, the only developer of these many people in the group working this, um, especially Amin, who is still doing his PhD with Anirvan, who uh, did so much of the implementation for this. So, um, yeah. Um, I was also thinking, so you touched on forward transfer and backward transfer. I don't think I have explained this. Should I explain this very briefly? Okay, wonderful. So basically, um, as I was saying, when we are training continuously, what we want is, of course, our model to be able to acquire new knowledge from new data. Of course, that's the, that's the whole goal. Um, when we apply certain kinds of methods, sometimes we reduce the plasticity of the model. So the model just is not able to acquire new knowledge as well. And basically, when we measure forwards, transferability, we are measuring whether the model has this plasticity loss, and we are also measuring whether the model performs well on tasks that it has not seen yet, so tasks that come later. So basically, when I just take a model after task four and I test it on task five, does it perform better than if I had just done like regular sequential training? So that would be forwards transferability, and backwards transferability is basically prevention of forgetting. So whether, say, I have trained my model with tasks one, two, three, four, five, um, how well does my model perform on task one? And backwards transferability is typically the opposite to forgetting. So if my performance on task one has actually increased after training with all of this additional data, then I have positive backwards transfer. So yeah, just just a small parenthesis because I don't think I had explained this before. No, but that is really nice. Thanks for explaining these metrics. And I think some of these metrics are being developed in the bigger continual learning community. And I guess you probably have a lot of role that you play in the bigger continual learning community by being probably the only one who is representing the medical side there. So that's really cool. And I I, I was recently looking at your many, many Twitter updates, and I saw that you have been doing something called unconference in continual learning. And can you just explain what is an unconference and what what is a, like what are you trying to do with there? Yeah, definitely. And um, so first of all, of course, there are, there are uh, multiple people doing medical continual learning, but yeah, not so many. So we definitely hope that the community grows with time. So the unconference um, is basically the the first very large event hosted by the Continual AI Research Society that I'm also a part of, and the goal was to basically give people the opportunity to um, present papers that follow a pre-registration format. So this is one of the big pillars of the on-conference. 
where um, we do not have papers that people submit the paper, this is reviewed, and then the results are presented. We follow this concept, which I really, really love, and that is becoming quite popular in a lot of computer science areas, which is the pre-registration. So basically you say, so I want to, I want to perform these experiments. This is my experimental protocol. This is how I will quantify. This is the data that I will use. And you present that. And then if the reviewers believe that this is um, yeah, a good protocol, that this is uh, valuable to show, then you perform these experiments and you present the results. And the good thing of this is that publication bias is reduced because then we actually see the papers being published that have negative results where we can, I mean, basically because this was accepted in the pre-registration, we can say, okay, so this was a good idea. This was a, a good experimental protocol, but it failed, which of course it can. So I think this is great because um, it happens so often that because we don't see something published, then we think, oh, but this is a great idea. I will try this. And of course, many people have maybe tried it in the past and it just doesn't work. Um, so this is one way to counter this. So this is one of the uh, concepts of the on-conference. Then um, the on-conference was also a wholly virtual event that took place across um, different time zones in 24 hours. So we had times when uh, we had a lot of participation from yeah the sort of Pacific time areas like I'm at, like California, Vancouver, etc., uh, we had times where it was very, very convenient for people to join from Central Europe. We had times where people from Asia could join. So yeah, this was basically the main concept. And um, of course, all of the talks were recorded, or a majority of the talks were recorded. So this will be made publicly available in YouTube. But uh, by following this virtual scheme, um, we gave people from different time zones the possibility to interact also with other researchers that were in similar areas. So I thought that that was great. So there are, of course, a few takeaways that we have from this edition that we will consider for the next edition, such as, of course, there were a few slots where we have very, very little participation because it um, didn't really work out so well for any of the time zones. So this is something that we will address in following years. But yeah, that was another one of the pillars. And I would say another one of the aspects is just that we wanted to have a venue where members of the community could interact. So also we wanted to make this more interactive. So not just have oral sessions where people present. We had a lot of different formats. So I participated on a panel on applications when I talked about uh, medical continual learning. There were also mentoring sessions. There were different possibilities for people to discuss different topics in a very interactive manner. So this was another one so concept. So yeah, I would say it was, it was a great event. I had a lot of fun. And hopefully we can do it again next year. Yeah, I hope so as well, because it sounds like a really nice and progressive concept. And it's, it's cool that you're also taking the initiative to create an experiment with progressive concepts like these. So uh, for today's session, I have a final question for you today, because we have been mainly talking about the research you have been doing as a PhD candidate and uh, the formats you have been organizing shortly after. So uh, now I'd like to ask you about your current position at Stanford University. What is basically um, yeah, the main research focus of your work and what is the kind of project that you're working on? Yes, uh, thank you so much for, for the question. So basically right now I work in a computational neuroscience laboratory. So we work almost exclusively with neuroimaging data. And I in particular are working a lot with fMRI data. and um, in particular with two data sets that we partially acquired in the lab, where we, these are longitudinal data sets, where we scan participants every year or every two years with a structural, functional, and diffusion MRI. So we extract these types of images. Maybe also ask them to fill out different types of questionnaire, a lot of the data. And both of these data sets, one of them is ABCD, the other one Encanda, follow either children from childhood to adolescent or uh, early adults. And uh, we are mainly interested in predicting the progression of substance use disorder and mental health disorders. So the progression and the appearance of these disorders, which I found it to be a very, very fascinating problem because it's something that's so difficult to evaluate, right? 
a lot of the processes that we use for diagnosing this disorder are very, very subjective. Most of them rely on these self-reported questionnaires. And I really do think that imaging has the potential to make these diagnoses and also decisions on the treatment be a little bit more objective and hopefully result in better treatments. So what I am working on specifically is, yes, so basically predicting the progression of different symptoms for mental health and also the appearance of these substance use disorders. And basically what I want to do is to develop graph neural network models that take into um, account the longitudinal aspects of the data and continuing sort of, and sorry for the pun, the my research on continual learning, I want to see how I can develop the models in a way that we can train this sequentially, ideally in an online learning manner. So we, of course, do have the date of when each of the participants was interviewed. So I would really, really love to be able to develop methods where we have one initial model and then we can update this model or maybe we have like an ensemble of models and we can update this as time goes on. Yeah, that sounds like a great problem to have and especially a timely problem to solve because I guess with the digital media and how people are really getting involved into social media from early on, we probably in the course of humanity never had such a massive change in people's social behavior. And we frankly don't have a history of how these impacts the developmental disorders or the, the substance abuse. We, we really don't know. So there is so much data that you will probably gather that is in the true nature dynamic because it's really open world. We didn't have an equivalent world state before. So I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to see what breakthroughs you can bring there. Thank you. Uh, yes, so that is one thing. Thank you. And we also were fortunate, of course, um, as, as the chairman would say, looking unglu, that um, we also acquired data during the COVID pandemic. So a lot of very interesting findings have already emerged from how COVID impacted the social interactions and the mental health of individuals. Yeah, I can imagine that that's, that's indeed a really important part where such a social distancing at a societal scale, global scale, never happened before in our recorded memory. So at where you can generate so much data. So that's really, yeah, definitely. So on that note, all the best for the awesome research and the outreach activities that you are doing around medical continual learning. I, I really hope your uh, success grows from here on and you do more awesome works in the coming years. Thank you so much for your time, Camila. Thank you so much for inviting me and having me here. It was lovely to talk with both of you again. Really missed you at Mikai. Hopefully we can meet again next year, either Mikai, MIDL or some other setting. <laughs>